please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14. We continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we're in beginning a new chapter, Luke chapter 14 this morning. And as you turn there, just a couple things. First of all, uh, just a reminder, this is in your, your bulletin as well, but if you're interested in being baptized, uh, please uh, let me know within the next two or three days. Uh, March 18th, I believe, is our uh, planned baptismal service, and so let me know if you wish to follow the Lord in obedience and, and be baptized. Uh, also, uh, exciting announcement, uh, we are going to be presenting to the congregation uh, two men for a consideration of elder. And uh, one of them is uh, Mike Chambers. He's been on staff for a few years now, and, and we are proposing that he be brought and be a part of the elder board. Now, if you're not a very, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. The second person that we're, uh, that we're asking you to consider as, as elder is Kirk Hoffman. And so we're excited about both of these men and the opportunity to see them become uh, more officially shepherds of our church. Uh, the way that our, our church works is we believe that uh, Scripture calls us as a church to be uh, led by a group of men, uh, elders, that serve as, as shepherds of the, of the flock, the shepherds of the church. And uh, these, these individuals are not, uh, as, as the world would understand it, not rulers. They're shepherds. They're servants of the church. And uh, these, these men uh, lead the church. They serve the church. And our church is also set up that the congregation uh, will affirm some of the decisions. These, some of the decisions the elders make will be brought to the congregation. They'll affirm those and say, yes, we believe that uh, this is how God is leading our church as well. And one of those uh, decisions is on who is an elder. And so in the coming weeks, uh, both Kirk and Mike will be sharing their testimonies, and you'll have the opportunity to talk to them. We're entering a, a period of time that Scripture refers to as a time of testing, where you can set up obstacles for them to complete and uh, surprise them in the hallway with really hard questions. They love that. Uh, no, this is, in all seriousness, this is a time of testing where we say, look, is, do we as a congregation agree that this is where God is, is leading these men? And so there'll be more information about that forthcoming, but I want to put that on your radar screens. It's a very exciting time in the life of our church. Well, now, if, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we look at Luke chapter 14? We'll be reading uh, from the English Standard Version, looking at verses 1 through 14 of Luke chapter 14. Luke writes, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away, and he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12, he also said to the man who had invited him, 
when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You may be seated. May God strengthen us through his word this morning. Let's pray that God would continue to bless our time of worship this morning. Father, we do ask your blessing on our time of worship. We pray that our words would be honoring to you, would glorify you. We pray that our hearts would be receptive to your truth, and we thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen. We are prideful people, we human beings. We have a very high opinion of ourselves, and we desire that others have a high opinion of us as well. And one of the ways that our pride manifests itself is in our desire for status. We desire to have a higher status than other people and for others to recognize our high status. And because of that desire, that desire for status, we often seek out status symbols, visible, tangible reminders to other people of our value and of our worth. Status symbols have changed over the years what exactly qualifies as a status symbol. It used to be that if you were uh, pleasantly plump and pale, uh, that was kind of a status symbol because it showed that you had enough money to eat well, so you're kind of pleasantly plump and you weren't outside and so you were kind of pale. That was a status symbol. That's not so much the case anymore. In fact, uh, the 2010 edition of The Economist wrote an article about status-seeking, and this is what uh, the article said. It said, um, what is deemed bragworthy has changed dramatically over time. In the 1950s, it was about keeping up with the Joneses, amassing as much new stuff as your neighbors. Today, everyone in the rich world has a washing machine, so people increasingly seek to advertise their, their hipness or their virtue instead. In other words, it used to be that, that amassing the number of material things that the Joneses had was how you displayed your status. Today, that's not so much the case because we all have so many things. Instead, sometimes status symbols are in terms of our being able to display our virtue or how hip we are. The article continues, many people want to make it clear that they're deeply, deeply concerned about the world's problems. And so a growing number of goods are designed to convey this message. I care about the world. Toyota's Prius hybrid car is not only green, it's also instantly recognizable as such. The mango radios are handcrafted in an Indonesian village using only sustainable materials and and so on. The article concludes, the recession is forcing Western consumers to pay more attention to prices than they used to, but people, I love this line, but people like peacocks But people like peacocks will never tire of displaying to their friends and potential mates just how wonderful they are. Firms whose offerings scream status will never want for customers. It's exactly right, isn't it? You and I desire status. We want visible, tangible reminders to everyone else how wonderful we are. And our desire for status and for status symbols, our seeking after status, 
manifests itself in, in different ways for different ones of us. Some of us seek status in our, in our business culture. We want the pay grade that shows other people in the business just how wonderful we are. Or we want the title with our name that goes with our position so people can understand the authority that we have in the business structure. Or maybe we're a dad and, and we desire this, the status of, of being a good dad, and so we want kids that are good athletes or good academically, and we want people to look at our children and see how wonderful they are, and by transference, realize how wonderful we are. Or maybe that we're a, a mom, and we have a desire for other moms to wonder, wonder how we do all that we do and see how wonderful we are, and so we want our, our children to behave in a certain way. Or maybe you're in school, and you know in school there are certain ways that you can display your status to your friends. And so you want to make the grades that show how wonderful you are. You want to be in the clubs and the club president that shows how wonderful you are. You want to be seen with certain students and not seen with other students so people will understand how, how popular you are. All of us, in a myriad of ways, seek, seek status. In fact, uh, just yesterday morning, I, I was out uh, running and I was running at a very, very comfortable pace. I was, I was completely content with the pace at which I was running. It was early. No one was out. And so I was just enjoying this, this nice early morning jog uh, when suddenly I began to hear uh, someone behind me. And as I, I listened to the footfalls behind me, I realized that the person was also running. And what was more distressing was running more quickly than I was. And I faced a loss of status. I wasn't going to be the, the fastest person on the street at the moment, and, and which was easy when you're the only person on the street. But I, I hear these footfalls, and, and so I realize I'm about to lose status. And so I, I look back, and now, now fortunately, I am not a chauvinistic person, but some people are. And uh, I saw a young woman that was running and about to pass me. And uh, now, not in my eyes, but in other people's eyes, I was about to lose even more status. And then this uh, young woman said, hi, Daniel. And I realized that she knew me, and I was about to lose even more status because it was someone who knows me. And so uh, I look back, and it was someone who goes to our church, and, and uh, she's you know, just, just running way too fast for any human being to be running on a Saturday morning. But, and so I, I, I run for a little while, and, then, and she goes off a different way, and, and I go, and I have a, a heart attack in a nice little quiet spot by myself. Um, so status, right? We, just a million different ways, a million different ways a day, we seek out status. We want to be, be seen as, as something by other people, and we want people to see our, our value in, in a myriad of different ways. All of us struggle, I believe, with this in, in some capacity. Here's the problem. <laughs> the problem is that the one who seeks status in this world isn't seeking the heavenly kingdom. We do this in, in a myriad of different ways. We seek status in, in countless different ways. In fact, uh, one sociologist has said this, it's impossible to understand people's behavior without the concept of social stratification because class position has a pervasive influence on almost everything. See if this is true of you. It influences the clothes we wear, the television shows we watch, the colors we paint our homes in, and the names we give our pets. Our position in the social hierarchy affects our health, our happiness, and even how long we live. But again, the problem is the person who is a status seeker in this world cannot simultaneously be seeking the kingdom of God. 
That's really the, the central point I want you to grasp as we look at these verses together this morning. The person who is a status seeker in this world cannot be seeking the kingdom of God simultaneously. We're going to ask this question together this morning, what's so wrong with being a status seeker? Why is status seeking wrong? And we're going to look at three answers to that question, why status seeking is so wrong. We're going to see Jesus talking here about the demise of the status of the status seeker and how being a status seeker in this world cannot allow you to simultaneously pursue the kingdom of God. Well, let's look at the first reason that status seeking is wrong. Status seeking, first of all, creates an ungodly ethical system. Why is status seeking wrong? Well, first of all, why is it wrong to be a status seeker? Well, first of all, status seeking creates an ungodly ethical system. Look, if you would, with me at verses 1 through 6. Look at the setting. First of all, it says in verse 1, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's at this home of a Pharisee. This would be a person who was very high up in the religious social structure here. In fact, it says that he's a ruler. He's reached the very pinnacle of religious life in this community in which he lives. And in this culture in which these uh, first century Jews lived, there was a, a social obligational ethic that existed. A person would have an obligation to treat people in the same way that, that they treated them. And so if a person wanted to become popular, one of the ways to do that was to host a party. You invite this person, this person needs to invite you later. In fact, the higher up the people that you invited, the greater your chances of getting similar invitations from people of equal or greater social status. And so in this culture, there's this ruler, this Pharisee, that on a Sabbath invites Jesus to attend one of his dinners. The question is, why Jesus, right? Jesus wouldn't have been a person that would have been at the, the pinnacle of the religious life in the first century Jewish culture. So why is Jesus there? Well, perhaps he's there. Perhaps he's there as a visiting rabbi, as kind of a, a traveling rabbi. But what we also have to understand is that Jesus has represented, uh, through his teaching, an attack on the status system of the first century Pharisee. Remember what Jesus talked about in his Sermon on the Plain? He talked about reversing the social hierarchy. He said, you know, instead of blessed are those who are wealthy now, he said, look, the people who are blessed are those who are poor. The people who are blessed are those who are mourning now. Those who are laughing now are going to be sorrowful later. He's tried to turn the entire social status on its head. This social obligation culture, he also attacks. He says, look, instead of treating people the way they treat you, it's easy to love the people who love you. Instead, what you need to do is love your enemies. It's a teaching, an ethical teaching, that is totally contrary to the thinking of the first century Pharisee. It represents an attack on the social structure, the social status system. And the Pharisee, who stands at the pinnacle of this social status structure, has a dinner and invites Jesus to it after Sabbath services one Saturday. And Jesus, we see, is there not just because he's a traveling rabbi, but we see in the end of verse 1 here in chapter 14 that he's been invited so that he can be watched. What is this teacher going to say 
and do next. They've heard some things about him. What is he going to do in this setting? In verse 2, we see that they've laid a little bit of a trap for him as well. It says, behold, suddenly there at this dinner of people in these high social standing, there's this man who has dropsy. In other words, he had this, this condition where his, the, the, you know, the tissue is, in his body is, is filled with fluid, maybe a limb or, or some area of his body, and, and it's a very uh, uncomfortable position. It's an indication of something else being physically wrong with a person. In this culture, they believe that it was a result of sin or, or immorality. And it's a Sabbath, they're having this nice dinner, people that are prestigious are there, Jesus is there as well, and they put this person with an obvious physical ailment in front of Jesus to see how is he going to respond to a person in this condition. And Jesus asks this question, realizing what they want to test him on. It says in verse 3, Jesus responded to them, to the lawyers and the Pharisees, and he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it permissible under your interpretation of the law for me to help this person or not? And you would have thought that he just told one of my jokes because it is that silent. Says that they were silent. They didn't know what to say. They didn't want to say, no, it's not lawful. They didn't want to say, yes, it was lawful. There was no good response here that wouldn't betray the condition of their hearts. And so verse 5 tells us, or verse 4 tells us that he healed him, and sent him on his way. Then look at verse 5. This is crucial. He said to them, he asks them a second question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And again, they're quiet. They don't know what to say. With this question, Jesus betrays the heart attitude of the Pharisee, of of the lawyer. And it's a similar question to one that he's asked before, for example, in chapter 13. With this question, what he's getting at is, look, you've created a, a law system, an interpretation of the law, this entire system, that allows you to keep the law perfectly. And yet, at the same time, a system that harms other people. So in other words, if it, if it behooves you to act in a certain way, you've created loopholes for yourself that will allow you to do that. And yet, if it allows another person to be helped, you would rather them be harmed. You've created a social structure, an ethical system that allows you to remain at the pinnacle of it. You've created an ungodly ethical system. You've placed yourself in a position where you allow yourself to, to say, I'm, I'm a great person, I'm, I'm doing all that I'm supposed to do. They've created this ethical system that seeks to exalt themselves instead of be obedient to God. The first Ironman was uh, conducted in, Ironman Triathlon was conducted in 1978. It began in terms of a conversation in 1977. You know, a triathlon is a person who... Uh, swims a ridiculously long amount of time, then bikes an obscene amount of time, and then runs a ridiculous amount of time. That's kind of an Ironman triathlon, especially. I admire people who do it. That's why I kid. Um, but they, these guys in 1977 were, were getting together, and they were talking about which of them were the best athletes. 
And the people who were the swimmers could talk about some of the things that they were able to do physically and say, you know, this is why a person who's an elite swimmer is the, the most healthy. And a person that was a, a runner was talking about the things that a runner could do, the resting heart rate and things like that, and why they were the best athlete. And they talked about the, the oxygen content level of the blood of a person who's a biker. And so all these guys, especially bikers and swimmers, I believe, were at this first meeting, were talking about things about themselves that demonstrated that they were in the, the best health. And they were able to point to certain features of things that they were able to do to, to show how, how healthy they were. I have a family member who was talking to me about the benefits of, of CrossFit training. And CrossFit training is kind of a, the new exercise thing. And he was talking about how great it was because he said, you know, um, it allows you to become very healthy at doing kind of things that you'll use in your everyday life. He said, uh, anybody can go out and run a bunch of miles, but that doesn't mean you're healthy, which showed his ignorance, right? Um, no, but he, his point was, you know, we can all point to these little criteria and say, well, this is the definition of healthy because it's what I'm able to do. It's what I'm pursuing. The same is true. The same is true in our moral life. The same is true in our morality. Sometimes we have a tendency to point to the things that we do in our moral life and say, hey, these are the qualities of a person who's living a, a godly ethical life. In fact, let me give you a, a couple points of, of application as we think about this first point that status-seeking creates an ungodly ethical system. First of all, kind of ask yourself these, these three questions. Do you work to conceal sin in your life? Are you a person who works to, to conceal sin that exists in your own life? Whenever a, a person would confront you on a sin or have the opportunity to find out about something that you're struggling with, do you work to conceal and hide that from other people so that, so that you don't lose your status? Another question to ask yourself as we think about this, this first truth that status-seeking creates an ungodly ethical system is uh, are you confident in your own goodness. As you think about your moral conduct, you say, you know, I have a high level of confidence in, in my goodness because I can compare myself with other people, and as I compare myself with other people, I'm very confident that I'm a good person. I fall into the good category. A third question of application to consider here as we think about the ungodly ethical system that a person seeking status creates is am I more concerned with the sins that I don't struggle with than the sins that I do struggle with? Am I more concerned with the sins that I don't struggle with than I am with the sins that I actually do struggle with? So, for example, let's say that you look at your neighbor and you see, boy, my, my neighbor has a real problem with anger. Man, that anger thing is a pretty serious sin, isn't it? You know, man, I... I'm so glad that I don't struggle with anger because a person who struggles with anger is a person who's very separated from God. And yet, at the same time, you're struggling with, with greed. And greed doesn't seem that concerning to you. Maybe you've heard this illustration before, but you heard about the, the Texan who went outside and Friday was Texas Independence Day, by, by the way. I hope you all celebrated in your hearts as you thought about Texas, but the Texan went out and grabbed his gun and went out to the side of his barn and, and shot up the barn with bullets and then uh, went back and, and painted bullseyes where every bullet had hit and was able to say what a great shot he was, right? 
That's how we are sometimes with our ethical systems. We, we think about the things that we're good at, that we're successful in, and, and those are the standards of a godly person. That's a status seeker, a person who wants to exalt themselves instead of pursue God's ethical system. Ethical system that makes us look good is an ungodly ethical system. It leads to pride and, and legalism. The characteristics of a God-centered ethical system is that it, it causes us to realize our, our deep need for God and for his grace. And Jesus realizes that these Pharisees don't get it. They're seeking for status. Their hearts are far from God. Why is it wrong to be a status seeker? First of all, it creates this ungodly ethical system that causes you to fail to understand your own need for God's tremendous grace. Secondly, secondly why, is an ethical, why is it wrong to be a status seeker? Number two, Status-seeking leads to an inflated sense of one's own worth. Status-seeking leads to an inflated sense of one's own worth. Look at verse 7. Remember, Jesus is here at this dinner, and he tells a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now, in this first-century Jewish meal, we believe that this would be kind of the seating order. You may have a picture of people sitting down to eat like in Da Vinci's The Last Supper. That Da Vinci wasn't there. That's a very wrong picture to have in your mind as you think about the way that people ate dinner. There wasn't like a, a high table and people sitting at chairs. Most likely, we believe, it would have been a kind of a U-shaped table that was very low to the ground. And kind of at the center of the U, uh, there would have been a, a and, and really all, through, all around the U, there would have been kind of three three-person uh, couches, little little pillows that were, that were uh, around this U-shaped table. So U-shaped table, low to the ground, and these little pillows that, that seated about three people. And at the very center would have been the most important point of the, most, the highest honor seat in the room. That would have been where the host sat, at the center of that three-person pillow couch. Number two position in the room was to his immediate left. So highest position, second highest position in the room, and then right to his right would have been the third highest prominent seat in the room. You say, wow, this is kind of silly and complicated. Yeah, it gets worse. Here, where's, number, where's the fourth highest position in the room? Well, here's what you do. There's that center three-person couch. Now you go to the couch that's to the left. And the fourth highest position in the room is in the center of that couch. Fifth highest is to that person's left. Sixth highest to his right. Where's the seventh? Well, now you, there, you go past the, uh, the original couch. Now you go to the right, that, for that first couch to the right of the host's couch. Center is number seven. To the left of that person is number eight. And then the right of that person is number nine, and so forth and so on. It, it was like if you've walked in the room, it was like going into a high school cafeteria, you know. Uh, you can't necessarily discern where the positions of prominence are, but if you're a kid that goes to that high school and you look and you see where people are sitting in that cafeteria, you know exactly where the good seats are and where the not-so-good seats are. Whenever the people are going into this room, as silly as it is, they're trying to get the good seats on the good couch, the nice pillow. It's much better to sit two to the right or the left of the host than six to the right to the right of the host. You know, it's, it's just silliness. And as they go in, they're so concerned with others understanding their own value and their own worth 
that they, they want to get that sixth best seat instead of the eighth best seat. So Jesus gives them, Luke calls it a parable, right? That's a very important word to notice there. It's an illustration. Jesus, as he talks here, isn't trying to give them advice on how to make themselves look more prestigious. He's giving them advice on how their heart attitude needs to be, not in physical, the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. Here's Jesus' advice using this, this setting as an illustration. He says, look, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished come along and the host move you. In other words, the host would have had a, a prearranged seating in, in his mind, and so he knew that when he invited this person, where this person was going to sit and where they were in relationship to you. He says, don't make it so that you sit yourself too high, and the host has to come and say, <clears throat> yeah, uh, actually, that's not your seat, and you have to get up, and you have to go sit by, you know, stinky feet Pete over there, next to low him on his pillow, and it's just kind of disgusting. You get the bad seat, and everyone looks at you and realizes what you've done. It says, instead, sit at a low place, and allow the host to come up to you and, and say, friend, move up higher, and then you're honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Then verse 11, this is the key verse in this section, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Is Jesus' point here to describe how a person navigates the social status world? No, his point is exactly the opposite. Look, the social status stuff, this, this symbol seeking is ridiculous. Instead, what Jesus is, is talking about is the right heart attitude that a person has as they, as they pursue life. The person who is who has an exalted opinion of themselves, is in grave danger. They're going to be humbled. And the person who approaches life with a humble attitude is a person who's going to be exalted. Brothers and sisters, this is a crucial biblical concept. The status seeker, the person who's a status-seeking person, leads, uh, leads a life that leads to an inflated sense of one's own worth. And over and over again, Scripture warns us of reversal. The person who exalts himself gets humbled. The person who humbles himself is exalted by God. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Luke chapter 1 as Mary is speaking, she says that God has brought down, this is verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. I already talked about Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. The, the hungry are blessed. The full are declared a woe upon. Those who are laughing now, a woe is declared upon, and the people who are weeping are said to be blessed. There's reversal. James chapter 4, God, God, James says, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. First Peter chapter 5, likewise, you are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This is verse 5 of Peter 5. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Over and over again, and we, we see in Scripture, the humble are exalted, and those who exalt themselves are humbled. It's a dangerous place to be in when you're exalting yourself. There's a story 
told that I think illustrates our natural tendency to not enjoy being put in our, our place. Many years ago, there was a, a famous uh, pastor who was in Paris, and this pastor was of Dutch descent, and the uh, government officials in the Netherlands invited him to come and speak at the Hague, and, and uh, he said, boy, no thanks, but no thanks. And they begged, no, please come and, and speak to us. And he says, you really don't want me to. You're just kind of you just want to be associated with kind of my celebrity status. And they said, no, no, please come and preach to us. And so he said, okay, I will. And so he came and he gave a sermon from Acts chapter 8, this uh, preacher from Paris of Dutch descent. It was Acts chapter 8, the story of the Ethiopian government official. And he said, uh, his first point was uh, a government official who reads his Bible, a rare thing. Point number two, a government official who admits that he doesn't understand something, a still more rare thing. A point number three, a government official who asks advice from someone beneath him, an extraordinarily rare thing. And then his final point was a government official who is converted, the rarest thing of all. They never invited him back. They didn't enjoy his message at all, in fact. They realized, too late, that he was preaching truth to them. Truth that these people in their exalted state did not desire to hear. A person who's a status seeker refuses to view himself or herself with humility Status seeking leads to an inflated sense of worth. We're constantly examining how other people are responding to us, and, and we want to, to climb the social ladder or, or see other people acknowledge our greatness. And so status seeking, as we have this mindset of exalting ourselves, it, it causes us to inflate our own worth, our own value. Let me give you a couple points of application here as we think about being a status seeker and the inflated sense that it gives us of our own worth. Number one, my first encouragement to you would be don't pursue status symbols. Don't be one who pursues status symbols. The positions that you sit in at a table, the numbers that come up on a computer screen when you check how much is in your account at the bank. The letters that are before or after your name, the way that other people look at you in the hallway at school, the invitations that you receive to parties, those things seem to be so, so valuable. We place such a weight upon those, those symbols of our own prestige, and yet they're worthless. They're worthless. Don't set your heart on status. It's a hard thing to think about, but these things that we love so dearly that show how wonderful we are are not just worthless, they're worse than worthless because they lead us to wrong conclusions about ourselves. A second word of encouragement to you here as we think about how status-seeking leads to an inflated sense of our own worth, second word of encouragement would be this. Watch your heart reaction. Watch your heart reaction when humbling things happen to you. 
when something humbling happens to you, what's your heart's response? It's a crucial thing to watch in your own spiritual life. When you don't get that invitation that you thought you were going to get, when you get kind of snubbed in the hallway, whenever this, this thing happens to you, what's, what's your response? When you don't get that promotion that you think that you deserve, whenever people don't give you the compliments that you think you deserve on your children, what's your heart's response to that? Your heart's response reveals a lot about the worth that you feel that you have in relationship to other people. Does your heart say, you know what? I don't deserve this. This isn't what I deserve. What I deserve is is recognition. What I deserve is is prominence. What I deserve is for other people to to talk to me and, and realize just how wonderful and humble I am. What do you deserve, really? Nothing. We deserve hell. Being a status seeker Fixating your mind upon symbols of status and other people recognizing your status in this world leads you to have an inflated sense of your own worth and not recognize your need for God and his grace. And Jesus recognizes the spiritual condition of these people that he's talking to, these people that are are the guests of this host. And he says, look, don't do this. Don't do it. Your heart is in the wrong place. A third point of application here. Uh, first point was, was don't pursue status symbols. Uh, secondly, watch your heart reaction whenever humbling things happen to you. Uh, how can this person have what I don't have? I don't deserve this. The third point of application here would be this. Um, don't contribute to this culture. Don't contribute to the status-seeking culture that, ex- that, that you exist in, that you live in. Don't be a person who buys into the celebrity culture in the church. Don't be a person who buys into the celebrity culture at work. Don't be a person who buys into the celebrity status-seeking culture at home. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, he talks about this problem in relationship to the church. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine, and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there or sit down at my feet. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In our church culture, in your work culture, in, in your life, don't be a person who contributes to status seekers. Don't be a person who contributes to the status seeking culture. God calls you to be humble, and God calls you to not recognize the status of other people in, the, in terms of, of celebrating a person simply because of their status. Again, that doesn't mean don't respect people in positions of authority, but it means you are not to be a person who is enamored by celebrity status or pursuing celebrity status. It's hard, though, right? Well, status-seeking creates an ungodly ethical system. It causes us to to view our own ethics in terms of our own standards instead of God's. It, It leads us to have an inflated sense of our own worth, and then finally... Status-seeking causes us to pursue relationships on the basis of self-interest. 
Status-seeking pursues relationships on the basis of self-interest. Jesus has watched these people come in, and he's seen them engaged in, in this vying for position. He, wants, he sees a person try to sit in the fifth place when really they belong in the seventh, and, and he sees them engaged in this silliness, and he, he calls them out on it. But then he, and then he says some, some words to these people that are invited, and you can imagine how popular Jesus was at dinner parties. He seems to always have just the right word to say at the right time that, that cuts people to the chase. So he says that to everyone there, and like, oh, it's kind of awkward. And then the host is like, hmm, good point, Jesus. And Jesus, oh, yeah, something for you too, buddy. He attacks the same hard attitude. He says, uh, verse 12, Luke tells us, he also said to the man who invited him. This is the guy who invited him. He says, uh, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, again, Jesus is in this, this culture that has this uh, gift obligation ethic. You do something for me, I do it back to you. You do something good to me, I owe you a, a favor. There's no such thing as a free lunch in this culture. There's no such thing as a true gift. There's this idea that there, there's this constant give and take, this obligation-based ethic. And so Jesus says, look, uh, to the host, uh, you're also pursuing status in this, 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 this dinner you're not off the hook either. You desire to invite people that are, going to, that are going to promote your standing in the community. What's the answer? The answer, Jesus says, is to instead, verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, He's talking about the disenfranchised here, the, the, the people who won't be able to, to benefit you necessarily. These are the people that you should focus on as, as you think about your, your hospitality. The status-seeking heart, and, and pay attention to this because it has very direct applications into our own culture, the status-seeking heart pursues relationships that will benefit them. It's true in school, right? Whenever a person, you're thinking about, do I want to be associated with this person? Do I want other people in school to, to see me around this person? Is this person going to, to increase my popularity or cause me to look a little bit unpopular? It's, it's true in our business relationships. Am I going to be, do I want to be seen with the types of people that are going to cause me to promote my own interests or the people that are going to hurt me? You and I, as status seekers, as people who struggle with status seeking our own heart, want to pursue relationships that will benefit us personally or professionally. And this is the heart attitude that Jesus warns us against. Invite those who won't benefit you. Invite those who won't further your status in the community. In fact, invite those who are going to be kind of a little bit of a stain upon your reputation. I've, I've told this story before, but it's, it's such a, a great illustration of, of where all of our, our hearts are. Whenever I was a youth pastor, sometimes uh, th this happened on more than one occasion. A, like after youth group, a, a young lady would, would say, hey, Daniel, I, I need to talk to you about something. And I would say, uh, yeah, let, let's talk. And she would say, uh, I have no friends. So, wow, that's, that's not, that's, Zero is a very low number. She goes, yeah, I have, I have zero friends. No one likes me. Uh, 
no one wants to be my friend. Wow, I, I feel terrible for you. Um, you seem like a nice person. I, who, who are some of the people that, that don't like you? Like, do you have names or something? She goes, yeah, everybody. Then she would mention uh, two girls, right? Five minutes later, a second girl would come and, and talk to me. Daniel, I don't have any friends. Zero. No one likes me. No one wants to be my friend. All I want is just one friend. I said, hey, I've, I've, how about so-and-so? Oh, not her. I want these two girls to be my friend. And she'd mention the same two girls. What's true of junior high young ladies is, is true of each of our hearts, right? We have a desire to pursue certain people because we believe these certain people will give us the, the status among our peers or among individuals that will cause us to, to be the people that we deserve to be. We deserve, we deserve to be the, the cool group. We, desire, we deserve to be the people on the pinnacle of the social pyramid. That's our belief. We love ourselves so much, and so we pursue relationships that will benefit us personally or professionally. Let me read to you a few verses about hospitality. About hospitality. You see, the biblical understanding of hospitality reveals that humility in our relationships is key. So often we enter into relationships saying, how is this relationship going to contribute to my status? Instead of, listen to this, instead of entering into relationships saying, how, is, how am I going to be able to serve this person in this relationship? Do you see the difference? The humble heart enters into a relationship saying, how am I going to enter this relationship in such a way that I can serve them? The status-seeking heart, the heart that has an inflated sense of one's own worth, enters into a relationship saying, how is this person going to serve me and my purposes and advance me in standing with other people? Listen to these words in Scripture about hospitality. Romans 12, 13, there's a lot actually of verses in Scripture about hospitality. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 8 both talk about how an elder must be a person, a leader in the church must be a person who is hospitable. 1 Peter 4, 9, let me first of all, Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And then 1 Peter is a very convicting passage to me. One time uh, last summer, actually, uh, Whitney's grandparents were coming over to to spend the week with us with with her sister and brother-in-law and uh, Whitney had the rather novel suggestion that that we give up our bedroom for her grandparents and I said well sweetheart um dear um what what do you mean I mean there's this perfectly wonderful bed that that they can sleep in that that has uh, just there's a bathroom very close like the door that goes right into the bathroom it, your grandparents would love it and I don't know if they'd be comfortable giving up me giving up my bed and my closet, and they would probably feel bad about that, and I don't want them to feel bad. And she goes, well, Daniel, I, you know, I think this would be a, a greater level, and she talked about the benefits of our room, and I said, oh, fine, but I don't have to be happy about it. And she goes, well, actually, you do, um, because the Bible says to show, show hospitality without grumbling. I said, sweetheart, I have a seminary degree. 
I know I'm not supposed to grumble, and I know I'm supposed to practice hospitality, but are you sure that Scripture combines those two in, in a single verse? And she goes, uh, yeah. And she took me to 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another, what? Without grumbling. Which just shows, don't, don't argue with your wife about Scripture. If she's been reading 1 Peter a lot. Show hospitality without grumbling. You see, the hard attitude that says, look, I deserve my bed. I deserve my things. I deserve being, having access to my closet and my, my bathroom and all these things. This is what I deserve. That's not the hard attitude that practices biblical, God-passionate hospitality. That is a hard attitude that says, I deserve things. I deserve a status. It's a hard attitude of arrogance, isn't it? And it's what Jesus warns us against. Within the next six weeks, uh, Whitney's grandmother had passed away. And how grateful I am to God that, that I have a wife that's passionate about hospitality, about seeking to honor the people that God brings into our lives. You see, a heart that's focused on itself and our own worth, our own value, is never going to understand our need for God's tremendous grace. If you, and we said this at the beginning, if you are a status seeker, if you desire the praise and the, and the recognition of men and women who are around you, you're receiving your reward in full. Because the status seeker cannot simultaneously pursue the praises of men and the kingdom of God. And Jesus' warnings here to his host, his warnings to the guests, are merciful warnings that call them to repent of their own self-sufficiency and seek the all-surpassing grace of God. You and I can receive the grace of God by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, alone for our salvation. That's God's call upon every man and woman and child that would repent of seeking our own exaltation and pursue the all-surpassing beauty and greatness of a gracious God. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your graciousness in our lives. We, we thank you for the call in our lives to reject self-sufficiency and to accept your grace. Apart from your grace, we cannot live, we cannot do the things you've called us to do. We pray you would give us an understanding of our need for you and pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.